Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. Later you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. And here we go with our study on soteriology, the study of salvation. And tonight we're continuing in this series of difficult passages. We've already spoken about the general aspects of salvation, salvation in the Old Testament and where the Old Testament saints went when they died. We talked about election. We spent several weeks talking about election and then security of the believer. Can we walk away from our salvation? And then we also last week looked at our saints only in the church. So now we're talking about is baptism essential for salvation? Then we'll also get in. We'll talk a little more about this, Lord willing, next week. And what is the baptism for the dead? Your questions are always, we always encourage them. We want to know. And there are ways that you can contact us through Facebook or through email. And you'll see those on the PowerPoint presentation, how to contact us. Now, let me start out with the doctrinal statement for the Landmark Church under church ordinances. Now, there's more to this than what I'm giving you, but let me just read this. We believe that there are two pictorial ordinances in the Lord's churches, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Scriptural baptism is the immersion of penitent believers in water and ministered by the authority of a New Testament church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now it goes on, the second part dealing with uh, the Lord's Supper, But here are some of the verses that just show that we stand on solid biblical ground when we're talking about baptism being immersion in water by the sinner that has repented, and now it's being being administered by the authority of a scriptural New Testament church. In particular, baptism is the first step of obedience after salvation for the new Christian, and they are to be immersed in water by a scriptural New Testament church. That's the one that's authorizing it. Now, there is a theologian, and we have Strong's Concordance and Strong's Dictionary, and many people look at that. He described the act of baptism in this way. This is what he says. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in token of his previous entrance into communion with Christ's death and resurrection, in token of his regeneration through union with Christ. Baptism is obedience to the command of Scripture following the example of Jesus Christ entering into fellowship with other believers. I thought that that was a pretty good uh, description from someone who is not a Baptist on what baptism really takes, uh, what it's really about. So, baptism then is the initial ordinance for believers, and it naturally follows conversion. It's that outward sign of what's taken place within the heart that man cannot see. Baptism then, to be authentic and scriptural, 
must be administered by one of the Lord's New Testament churches. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus there, he authorizes his church, uh, the church of Jerusalem, to administer the ordinance. If you go back and you look in Matthew chapter 4, you see that Jesus began to baptize, and actually not Jesus, but his disciples, following John's baptism. And we'll talk about John's baptism more next week and why that was important, but then we'll get into more of, of how Christ initiated baptism so that we have a proper understanding all the way through. But the important thing I want us to see is that the Lord commissioned, he authorized his churches to administer the ordinance of baptism. And he tells us exactly how that should be done. Now, anyone can do the baptism, but let me explain. It's just kind of like if you have a wedding, anyone can say the ceremony, but it's only recognized as being authentic when it's performed by an authorized, qualified agent. So that's why the Lord has given this to his churches. They are performed by someone who is qualified that has been designated by the Lord's church to be that agent to do the actual baptizing on their behalf. Baptism is always seen in the New Testament as what I might call a door to church membership. Every time someone was baptized, they were added to the church. It's important to recognize because sometimes they say, well, we can baptize, but you're not a member of the church. Every time the New Testament speaks about that, baptism was always that door to church membership. They first required that you were born again, that you're saved, and that you must be a, the proper candidate and then follow the Lord in scriptural baptism and you're added then to the church. And usually that's the way the motions go. If someone makes a motion, and we do find that in the book of Acts, that uh, Peter asked the question, when the Gentiles believed, can any forbid water? That was a negative vote. Normally today we take a positive vote upon hearing someone's confession of faith and their testimony, and then we make them a candidate for baptism, and after baptism, all rights and privileges of the church. That's kind of our in our tradition, but it's a biblical tradition. Of all the doctrines of Scripture, none seems to be abused as much as baptism. Perhaps this doctrine is so abused because it's so visible, it has so many implications. Since those who are correct on baptism, we're going to find that most of their other theology is correct as well. So let's think about some of the different problems that we have, because a wrong expression of baptism is going to manifest other problems in a person's life and belief. It's what I've been saying all the way through these lessons. When you have the proper theology, it has a practical application in our life. When we have the right view of God, we have a right lifestyle. Well, the same is true with baptism. When we have a wrong expression of baptism, it's going to show out in practical ways in a person's life or belief. So the first and the most obvious problem is that some preach baptismal regeneration, that a person cannot be saved without being baptized in water. That's really the key issue that we're talking about today. But I want to talk about some of the other problems of baptism as well. Because the second problem 
is that some baptize children before the age of accountability. That is that they have, before they have reached personal salvation. And they do this believing that it's an act of obtaining some sort of grace that's going to then lead people into accepting Christ. There's a third problem. Some baptize using the wrong symbol. They do not portray the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. Romans chapter 6, 3 through 5. It's also in Colossians. We're going to look at that a little bit later. It says that we are buried with him in baptism, risen to walk in the newness of life. And so baptism, the right symbol, shows that we have been united with Christ in his death, the death to the old man, the burial of the old man, and risen to walk in the newness of life. Just as Christ was raised, we are also a part of that resurrection. So using a wrong symbol, sprinkling, pouring, any other symbol besides immersion will lead you very much astray. The fourth problem is viewing baptism as a continued symbol of a person's covenant relationship to God. Some theologians say the covenant of Abraham and its symbol, circumcision, is continued in baptism. Thus, the candidate becomes a child of the covenant at sprinkling. The Old Testament was completed. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. We are now in the new covenant. And to say that we are under the covenant of Abraham and that we're going to try to make this now something, a part of the New Testament church is... I'll just say heresy. It is so wrong. It is misusing scripture. So that's the fourth problem when you view baptism as a symbol of a covenant relationship to God. There's a fifth problem. Some consider baptism is a sacrament. That is, that baptism is a means of obtaining grace rather than the symbol of grace. In other words, because of our salvation, because of our faith, that through the grace of God we were born again, now baptism shows that we are a new creation, that we are risen to walk in the newness of life. So when you consider baptism as a sacrament, you're looking at it as I'm getting this grace by that. It's a, it's a complete wrong view, and it will have that practical wrong aspect in your life. Because now you're working to do something to gain uh, grace. And grace is freely, freely given by God. It is unmerited. That's part of what, what it means. Grace is an unmerited favor of God. There's a sixth problem. Some fail to recognize baptism is a church ordinance. Therefore, you have non-church baptisms, and that's an abuse. I know, having spent time in the prison, the prison chaplains would baptize. That's an abuse. That's not a church. And there are other groups that will baptize. Some individual will go out and baptize. That's taking it outside of the New Testament parameters of what Christ established, for he established this in his church. So baptism is being practiced unrelated to the local church. And of Acts 2 and 41 is a good example of where we're told that that should be a part of that because we are to learn all things and to be discipled and raised up 
in one of the Lord's local New Testament churches. The seventh problem is that today there is a rejection of baptism altogether. There are many of these seeker-sensitive churches, they're dismissing baptism. They're saying that as an ordinance, it's not necessary. It only represents a penitent heart, and as long as you are right in your heart, you don't need baptism. And so by rejecting it, they're rejecting God's command as well. Those are just some of the initial problems that I recognized and some of the other, some theologians have recognized. And I think that those are important for us as we enter this topic. So we're talking about, is baptism essential to our salvation? So let's examine the scriptures. We're talking about difficult passages. Number one, does the Bible teach that baptism is essential to salvation? Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that is the preferred text for those that hold to this view. Let's look at it. It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Also, there's a second text that's utilized. We're going to look at both of these. Mark 16, 16. It says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now let's think about this. Let's look at those. Acts 2.38. When reading the text in the original Greek, the meaning is very clear. Luke, the writer of Acts, used something called in the Greek the emphatic clause. He put emphasis on certain parts of Peter's message. So there's an emphasis, and A.T. Robertson translate this in this sense. So this is the way A.T. Robertson, that great Greek theologian, all of our Greek textbooks are really based from A.T. Robertson's, but his work was so massive that they've condensed it down because it's there's just so much. A.T. Robertson is by far the leader of in modern day of Greek translation. This is the way he translates it. Repent for the remission of sins. You see, the emphasis is on repent and remission of sins. The second half, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So think about Acts 2.38 in that. Repent for the remission of sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the primary emphasis is on repentance for the remission of sins. The secondary emphasis is on baptism to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now those which are now being newly demonstrated, because in Acts chapter 2, we're going to talk about that, the context of this scripture. The passage takes place on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the Jerusalem church in a way that they never saw that before. They did not understand the Holy Spirit working like that before. This is fulfilling Jesus's promise that he would send another one to take his place, another comforter. He was going to send the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, and that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. So the question was asked in verse 37, the verse right before where we read, it says that they were cut to the heart and they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? So the context continues then also in verse 40, be saved from this perverse generation. 
Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Makes it very clear. They received his word. They accepted Christ as Savior. They were born again. Then those people who were born again, those people that were regenerated at the point of belief, after accepting Christ, they were baptized. It's very simple. Is there still a question whether baptism is essential to salvation today? In Acts chapter 3, we have the giving of Peter and John going into the temple. And there's a lame man that had been lame from birth. In verse 19 of Acts 3, he is told this man, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What did they tell him to do? Repent, be converted. They had healed the man. And he's asking, what do I now do? How about in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, as a result of that, it says, however, many of those who heard the word believed, because they saw this man that had been healed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's Acts 4, 4. So they heard the word, they believed. Doesn't talk about any of these being baptized. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, that's the only time the direct question is asked. It says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? As a matter of fact, it says exactly, and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So verse 31, Paul answers the Philippian jailer. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. If baptism were an essential element to salvation, why is it that Peter, John, Paul, none of them said to believe and be baptized? Why is it not required? Why was that when the question was asked directly, why didn't they say you have to be baptized? Well, the reason is because baptism followed. Now, it is true that in Acts 16, later on, this Philippian jailer is baptized, but it's that's not the key question here. The key question was, was, was he saved? Had he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? There is a danger of building a doctrine on just one or two verses. The Bible works as a whole. It never contradicts itself. And if we just take one or two verses and we try to build a doctrine, we leave off many other verses that then appear to be in contradiction to a few. But when we harmonize all of the scriptures, we're standing on solid ground. We understand then the Bible isn't contradicting itself. It's explaining the whole, and we see the whole great picture. Verses like John 3.16 would be viewed somehow as incomplete. By the way, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There, Christ gives you the exact way to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He's not asking then, he does not qualify that, say that you must believe and be baptized. So you see, if we take one or two verses, and we take them out of context, or we take them out of context of the whole, we come up with a misunderstanding. Then also, Paul left out a crucial part of salvation. If baptism were essential for salvation, when he taught the church at Rome in Romans 9, or chapter 10 and verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Baptism is not in question here. Baptism is not added to that necessary to be saved. Or what about in Romans 10 and 13? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the question is, is baptism essential to salvation? According to Jesus, according to Peter, according to Paul, and what he wrote also to the churches. No, it is not. And so why is baptism left off? It was because it was not essential to salvation. Let's understand salvation. Because the doctrinal statement of the church says, we believe that the depraved sinner is saved wholly by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and the requisites to regeneration are repentance to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit convicts sinners, regenerates, seals, secures, and indwells every believer. So that's what we understand salvation, that salvation is apart from baptism. It's necessary first, and it's through the grace of God, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, that we are born again. And there are many, many scriptures, and I've given them to you there on the PowerPoint. If you're watching that, then you'll see that numerous, numerous scriptures that back up that very statement. Some points of understanding that baptism is important. After salvation, we are obedient to Christ's command by following his example of baptism. Let's get it right. Let's get it in order. God always blesses the obedient life. However, to place more importance than the scripture does is to err. We are out of line if we're putting more importance on something than the Bible does than what Christ, then we've gotten ourselves out of line. And so think about also the thief on the cross. We're assured from Jesus' words on the cross that this thief recognized Jesus as the Messiah. For his words, remember, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Earlier, he had been railing on Jesus. The two, it says that the two thieves on the cross railed against him. And what did Jesus say to him? This day you will be with me in paradise. He's promised him that. Never is the question of baptism ever here. So simple belief. This sinner repented of his earlier railings against Christ, and he just simply believed in Messiah. Nothing else was required. Let's consider now Mark 16 and verse 16. Context is key. And after rebuking the apostles' earlier unbelief at the evidences of his resurrection, for others had come, Mary had come and said they had seen him. There were two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and Jesus in Mark 16 talks about that. Why didn't they believe him? Why didn't they believe his words? He rebukes those apostles. However, now in verse 15, and he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So the context is key. This is the giving of the Great Commission. It's the same that Matthew gave in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where he says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's the Great Commission. If baptism is essential to salvation, why does Matthew leave off that critical information? Why is that not in there? Instead, we observe the order that's found throughout Scripture. Matthew tells us, also Mark tells us, receive the word. There in Matthew 28, he says, make disciples. That's the idea. You're getting, people are receiving Christ. They're becoming a disciple, becoming a learner. Then baptize them with the proper authority in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today, I've heard some that say, well, you have to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. You have to baptize in the name of Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit. I have seen some that have even done, well, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, that's silly. He's talking about the proper authority. He's talking then that this is authority of God that has come through his local New Testament churches. So next is then teach them the all things, all of the word of God. So that's the order. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them. It's that simple. Considering Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice what's left out of Mark's account. Unbelief is the condemning factor. If they were rejecting baptism and baptism were essential to salvation, then they would say he who is not baptized is condemned. Not rejecting being baptized is not an issue here. In other words, let me put it in the positive. If you believing, you will be saved. Then to follow in scriptural baptism. If you do not believe, you will be condemned. Baptism is not in the question there. It's part of the points of understanding. Salvation is by faith through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. If baptism is a means of salvation, then it is partly by grace and partly by our works. Well, the scripture is clear, not only here, but also in Titus 3 and 5. Salvation is by faith through grace, not of works. We cannot boast. We have no part. Salvation is all the grace of God. None of us can earn it, nor do we deserve it. It's all the working of God. So we can conclude a few things, that baptism is not essential to our eternal salvation, to our, our eternal life, but it's the next step after accepting Christ as our personal Savior. After we've been born again, for an obedient life, we want to follow Christ's example. It's the command of our Savior. That's what he's asked us to do. We should then obey we should then follow after and do what he has said. Baptism is a church ordinance. It should never be taken lightly. It should never be changed from the Bible method. Man does not have the authority to just say, well, we're going to pour, we're going to baptize infants, we're going to immerse them, we're going to do whatever. If you, you cannot change from the Bible method, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That's Colossians 2 and verse 12. That tells us the proper Bible method. 
buried in that watery grave with him in baptism. You were raised up through faith. The working of God already being evidenced and shown in your life, he has raised, as he raised Christ from the dead, you are being raised up from that old dead man into a new life. The proper baptism step is that we know there must be first that proper subject. There must be a person who is born again. And then we cannot get it out of the time element. First comes salvation. Baptism does not lead one to salvation. Baptism should never be done first. And that's what many try to do by baptizing babies. Well, we baptize in them, and then we'll see if they want to accept it later. It has to be done in the Lord's order. There must be the proper element. It must be immersion in water. You cannot be immersed in a, a bunch of foam peanuts. You cannot be immersed in some other thing. Every example was they were immersed in water. Pouring doesn't do it. Sprinkling doesn't do it. It's the proper purpose to show the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we are likened to that and we are accepting his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection into our life as well. We see that next week we're going to talk a little more about baptism, proper baptism. We want to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the baptism for the dead? We don't want to take one verse, so that's why we're going to look at that chapter as a whole and think about what is baptism for the dead, and we're going to talk more on the proper baptism. I hope that this has just been an encouragement and a source of blessing and helps you to give an answer to those that may be seeking an answer from the Word of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged challenged or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.